I suggested a few weeks ago that you might be reading uh, the Minor Prophets along with us in the message. If you've been doing so, you've probably noticed Eugene's brilliant introductions to the books. And I, I love the way he gets at what's happening in Joel when he says, when major personal suffering or natural disasters or social upheaval happens, that people instantly turn into theologians, right? God is absent, God is angry, God is punishing us, something like that. But because that happens and because we so often misunderstand God, I don't think it means we can do nothing. I don't think we can just like quit and say, well, it's kind of hopeless, I don't know if we can ever understand these things. Um, discerning turmoil is deep stuff. And it's actually dangerous. There's been a lot of harm that have come to people in trying to discern these things. Just think of the biblical example of Job. Right? Remember Job's friends? And think of John 9, when the man who's born blind and Jesus' first friends say to him, Lord, you know, who sinned, him or his parents, that this bad thing happened? And Jesus has to instruct them. So carefully considering the significance of something, I think has to be um, attempted. And that's what these prophets help us do. So thinking of what uh, um, everybody has been wringing their, well, I don't know about everybody. Uh, lots of Christians have been uh, wringing their hands about and wondering about for weeks now, but about what the Supreme Court might say about same-sex marriage and having it um, come out on Friday. This is one of those moments where I think we have to attempt to try to understand this together. Mark Galley, uh, who I think is the senior editor at Christianity Today, I can't remember his exact title, um, speaking kind of on behalf of that magazine, put out a statement that said in part, what actions and attitudes have we imbibed, we the church, that contribute to our culture's dismissing of our ethics? He says, before we spend too much more time trying to straighten out the American neighborhood, we might want to get our own house in order. And this, of course, mirrors Joel's call in the face of disaster. And I don't claim to know how any of you see that ruling. Um, so I don't mean to say that everybody thinks that's a disaster. But when upheaval happens, this then mirrors Joel's call to fast and pray and lament and mourn. So you might say, like, well, for what? What about this? If you take the most popular pornographic movies made in the last 20 years, ranked by how often they're viewed, 88% of them depict violence towards women. It's not just about sex. It's about violence to women. And if you read or ever hear any of these porn stars, these ladies who have come out of it and they're now Christians and following Christ, if you ever get a chance to hear them or read what they write, they say things like this, that on set women are threatened into doing what they don't want to do, both by male actors and by producers and directors. They're abused and bloodied and even raped at this point in pornography, the person viewing a film doesn't actually know whether a rape is occurring or not. 
those are now the most popular. Those are the ones all the guys like the best. So porn reduces women as objects to be used and abused and discarded. And so far, I'm sure even the guys in the room are going, yeah, that's a bad thing. Yet recent studies show that 55% of pastors view pornography. 77% of young Christian men do so. And you can ask any therapist in the room, any school counselor, and they'll tell you that there is an undeniable link between pornography and decreased sexual satisfaction, relationship satisfaction, attraction to real life partners. And there is now a new conversation happening amongst thoughtful youth pastors and those who teach in seminaries, those who teach to youth pastors. There is now a whole consideration happening that we've now got a whole generation of 12 to 17 year old boys coming into the church whose brains can no longer relate to women naturally. Their brain chemistry has changed. Because when you watch pornography, chemicals are released in your brain that cause attachment. And so they are losing their ability to actually attach to normal looking women, normal sounding women, women with just human normalcy. So now the church itself is wondering, what are we going to do? When we may be looking at a whole generation of people who have lost themselves. Joel says, not Mark Galley, not Todd Hunter. Joel says, let us rend our hearts and return to the Lord. Well, I haven't picked on men for a bit. A recent study by the Vatican shows that um, this is where you know, thousands and thousands of priests were polled about what they see happening, especially in the confessional. So this study by the Vatican said that women tend to sin less in lust, but more in anger. And of course, underneath anger is almost always fear or demand for something to happen or for something to stop happening. And then when you take that and you baptize it in our culture's um, need to and permission to self-expression, then there comes a willingness to say or do whatever is necessary to get my way. And just think of the widespread human damage done by anger expressed in that way. Now, ladies, I'm aware that guys do that too. And guys, I'm aware that there's a small minority of women who watch pornography. This gender's not the point here. The point is, let us rend our hearts and return to the Lord. This is what the prophets do. In the midst of confusing disaster, they clarify who God is and what he's doing. In the case of Joel, he's looking at this combination of wave after wave of locusts, eating literally everything, changing their whole society. Just imagine. Imagine if someday in California you got a notice that said there's literally no more water. It was that kind of thing. It changed everything. And it's not just the locusts, but there was this terrible hot drought. And so Joel uses this as a way to alert people, please hear this, that we're always dealing with God. So we don't just deal with God when there's a, a natural disaster or some great crime or something happens that we don't like the way it went. We're not just dealing with God then. 
We are always dealing with God. And so what Joel's trying to do is pry open the hearts of God's people in repentance. Walter Brueggemann, who's probably our generation's uh, most well-known writer on these prophets, said that the task of prophetic ministry is to nurture and nourish and evoke, I want you to get this, a consciousness and perception that's an alternative to the dominant culture around us. That's what prophets are trying to do. They're trying to work on our consciousness. They're trying to work on our perception of things so that we as the people of God see things in a different way and therefore feel and talk about them in different ways. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dare, sometimes I think I'm crazy, but I'm going to dare to take a shot at that this morning. I'm going to dare to take a shot for the next few minutes in trying to give you a different kind of consciousness about this and perception about what's happening. And here's why. We are at the mercy of our ideas. Our ideas completely control our way of being. And I want to suggest to you this morning, discipleship to Jesus as a way of correcting your ideas. So, for instance, the wider context for what happened on Friday is not the last 20 years of debate in America about same-sex attraction and same-sex marriage and all that. It's got nothing to do with that. It's, you know, it's not overturning something Bill Clinton did in the 90s. It's, it's got nothing to do with that. This is the wider context for this goes back hundreds of years to the Enlightenment and the French Revolution. So now for hundreds of years, humanity has had this pattern, this consciousness of throwing off various forms of authority and thinking that authorities of any kind confine me. They confine self-expression. And so there has been a now hundreds of years process of throwing off monarchy and government and truth, sorry, and truth and church. And of course, much of this needed to happen. I don't mean to say that the French Revolution was stupid because there are supposed good powers that were being used to oppress others. But it's like as humankind started, you know, drinking of that water, it then became a basis for throwing off any norm in favor of something I want to experiment with. Now, those of you who are ab about my age can remember the 60s and the early 70s. Remember thinking your, how square your parents were? They're so square. Because I actually did think, what is the problem with free sex? Why can't we have sex with whoever we want to have sex with? How stupid of our parents to think that was weird. Or what was wrong with LSD? It's a cool trip. Or speed. Or hash, or marijuana, whatever your drug of choice was back then. I kind of was not committed to one or the other. <laughs> right? Remember those days? That just all fits in line. I can remember when I was a new Christian, the big issue was divorce. Now, I know there are people in this room who are divorced, and I have 
you are welcome. But I remember when I was a young Christian in the mid-70s, that was a really big deal. If a, if a noteworthy Christian got divorced, it was literally on the cover of Christianity Today. And so I just want you to understand that this sort of thing has been happening for a long time. And so when, therefore, and again, I'm not picking on anybody, I'm just trying to give you a consciousness about this. So that when Rachel says she's black, and when Caitlin says she's a woman, there appears to be no place to stand. Things that seem to be fixed, relatively so, like race or gender. When these things seem fluid, nothing seems permanent. There's no solid ground it seems to stand on. But here's what I want you to get. Just as society seems to be getting its way, progress itself begins to rule us with an iron fist. After 400 years of progressive thinking, so that the only thing that's good is, is progress. The only thing that's good is increased liberty. Anything that's at all conservative or traditional is immediately suspect. And if you don't think so, just go read some blogs or read some comments on news stories. And you'll see the vitriol towards anything that suggests that there could be anything good about traditional views of something. And so progress does begin to rule us now like an iron fist. And like Jurassic Park, some of the animals that we're creating are turning on us and will turn on us. Because listen to me, no lens is adequate to human life. Feminism is not an adequate lens to human life. Liberalism is not an adequate lens for human life. Conservatism is not an adequate lens for human life. All of those lenses screen out important things. There is one lens that's adequate to a human life, and that is God in His kingdom. That's the only lens that we can put on to help us think about this, because changes in culture give rise to issues, but they can't resolve them. Resolution has to come from some transcendent source. I want to suggest God and His kingdom. That even nations come and go. Social norms come and go, but the kingdom of God is never at risk. The kingdom of God is never at risk. And therefore, Jesus sounds like the stunningly brilliant person He was. Seek, finish it with me, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. That's the only adequate lens. Everything else is a secondary or tertiary lens on what's happening. Because if we don't seek first the kingdom of God, we're going to try to secure ourselves using the various forms of power available to us. And that is, of course, what the Enlightenment and Friend, the revolutionary idea was trying to throw off these supposed good powers that were being used against the people. So if we don't trust in the kingdom of God, then we're going to trust in politics or hierarchy or money or force of personality or bullying. But again, Brueggemann is so brilliant here when he says, when we live according to our fears and our hates, when we live in, I love this phrase, I hope it gets deep into your heart when we live in the system of anxious scarcity. Our lives become small and defensive, 
and they lack the deep, joyous generosity of God. Well, again, let me show you what I mean by how we're at the mercy of our ideas. People who justify the power approaches do so because they assume, consciously or not, that humanity is a human project. Well, you don't have to be a great scholar to just stop and think for a minute that we did not conceive of the idea of humanity. Did anybody in this room conceive of the idea of humanity? Any of your ancestors? Has anybody ever taken claim for that? We did not conceive of the idea of humanity, nor did we create ourselves. So please, again, my, my goal here, my deep, loving, pastoral goal here is that you would get that humanity and its progress and its ultimate end is a divine project. And you can rest in that. Just rest. Just be at peace. I don't mean to say don't argue. Do you know this is now going to give, you know, there's, we've got another decade now of great job security for lawyers. Seriously, this is going to be tested everywhere and in all kinds of means. And so I don't mean to say don't argue. I don't mean to say don't have your opinion. I don't mean to say don't try to change things if that's what you want to do. That's not what I mean. You can do whatever you want to do. Here's what I would want to contend for. That whatever it is you think, whatever it is, whatever work you might do in society, whatever you might want to advocate for, just do it from the essential rest available to the one who derives their life from and lives it in the kingdom of God. That's all I'd want to ask for. Just notice and live in the deep, fundamental, essential rest that is available to any human being who will say, I derive my life from God and his kingdom, and I live my life in God and in his kingdom, relying on God for the achievement of my aims. No, come on, this is not hard. Just ask yourself, how would pundits on TV be different? How would blog sites be different? How would the comment sections of our news feeds be different if at least Christians were leaving the achievement of their aims to God? What if we just set an example in that? But if we're being honest, that, of course, raises a question. Why in the heck would anybody do that? On what basis would anybody do that? And the basis is what I've said to you many times, and it's weeks like this that I, I want to just underscore that I, me, and all of you are always already safe in the kingdom of God. If you're deriving your life from God in his kingdom, if you're living in it because the kingdom of God is never at risk, if you're living and moving and having your being in that kingdom, guess what? You are never at risk. So receive hope this week from Joel's spirit-enabled future that he describes. For nothing this week. <laughs> I don't know why I do this. Some of you have been teasing me about this, and I'm a little self-conscious of it. But this is one of those moments. Okay, I need all of your attention. <laughs> I, need, I, need, I need all of you to look me in the eye here. Nothing that happened this week, 
not the terror of escapees in New York, not the brutal terrorist shootings on the beach in Tunisia, and not even the best thinking of our brightest people in our society. None of that has the last word on God's project. So just, you know, I said that a big part of discipleship is Jesus changing our ideas about things. So disciple yourself for 30 seconds around these ideas. Wheat is growing with weeds. And sheep and goats are eating of God's green earth. And light is coexisting with darkness. And the kingdom of God, just picture this, the kingdom of God is growing among us like a humble mustard seed, modestly becoming all that the potential implied in that small seed. And God will sort out everything in the end. What's most real is what we read in our gospel story this morning. What's most real is, I mean, this, this paralytic actually was forgiven and actually was healed, um, obviously. But, but think now of that being a sign or a symbol of God's nature and will to forgive and overlook, as we read in Joel this morning. God's essential nature to heal all who are paralyzed or broken. For the final reality that God is bringing about is this. And here I want to invite you, however you best use your imagination, uh, I mean, you can and concentrate. You can look at me, you can close your eyes, bow your head. But I want you to hear this, not so much intellectually, but I want you to hear this imaginatively and evocatively. This is the final reality that God is bringing about. The devil who had deceived humanity was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. God who will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. For behold, I am making all things new. Daniel, can you put uh, Art's, um, Beth's art image back up? So this is the divine design. This is the settled outcome. And so I want you to hear this morning Job's hope for a spirit-inspired future. And take that hand that we saw this morning and hear Jesus say to you, come unto me, all you who are laden down with heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls.